Let's take a moment and pray together. Um, It's always a good thing for anybody who is teaching the Bible, especially a pastor who's teaching the Bible in the name of Christ to a whole congregation to pray the very thing we were just praying. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Now, little secret. I prepared two sermons. I don't yet know which one to preach. So that's what I'm going to pray about right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the echoes in that phrase. Not my will but yours be done. It takes us back to the description of Jesus praying just before he was betrayed and arrested, just before he was so mistreated, just before he died, willingly laid down his life for the redemption of others, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. And then we remember that Jesus taught us to pray the same way. He taught us to pray to the Father in heaven, your kingdom come and your will be done. And, and who are we that we should put on our lips the same words that Jesus spoke in that garden? And yet he doesn't shrink from teaching us as his disciples to share that prayer with him. Lord, make your will clear to each person in this room. Make known to them what you want, what you desire, and and give each one strength to do it, to follow it, no matter what the cost, no matter where it might lead. Make it clear to me this morning what your will is, what I would say and what I would leave unsaid. What I would say for the cause of Christ that I may say nothing for the cause of myself. Amen. We're working through John's gospel. We're looking at events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus And looking especially at how Jesus interacts with the Apostle Peter during those events because they give us a great window into the question of how does Jesus himself deal with flawed followers? Are we focusing on that? Well, part of it has to do with who we are. If you are a follower of Jesus, you know that you are flawed. You know that committing yourself to worship and love and follow Christ didn't immediately make you perfect. And it won't make you perfect until you are face-to-face with him, whether that comes through your death, you're going to be with him, or his return, his coming to be with us. Until that moment, we remain both his followers and deeply flawed. So that's who we are. But, but, But we're also focusing on this not just because of who we are, but because of when we are. We live in a moment when more people are saying more vocally 
that they are frustrated and disappointed and disturbed and discouraged by the failures of Christians. More, well, there's a category these days called de-churched people. People who grew up around Christianity but who now are walking away from it. And one of the most common reasons they give is, is, is their heartbreak at how they or people they love have been treated by Christians or by the Christian church or by leaders of the church. So because of who we are and when we are, we need to answer this question. How does Jesus love a church full of imperfect people? And, and what is he doing among us that we would become less of a stumbling block to other people? We want to take those questions seriously. Today we're going to do that by looking at the story of Jesus' arrest and his first interrogation. It's not a trial formally. And the way the Apostle John tells this story is like... Um, Picture a movie where we're cutting back and forth between two scenes. And, and sometimes Jesus is in the center of the camera's lens and focus. And he is being taken to the palace home of the high priests in Jerusalem. Wait, I thought there was only one high priest. Well, complicated story. But uh, there's a man named Annas. And, and he was appointed to be the high priest, should have been for life, according to the Bible. The Romans come in and they say, we don't know nothing about your Bible, and we don't like that high priest. We're appointing his son-in-law, Caiaphas, to be the high priest. And so as we read through the story, we'll bounce him back and forth between who's the high priest. Is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? Well, who are you asking? You're asking Jewish people or are you asking Roman people? Either way, they probably both live in this same palatial structure in Jerusalem. Jesus is arrested, bound, taken to, to that place for an initial interrogation. And then the camera cuts away and, and Jesus isn't in the center of the camera anymore. It's Peter. And what's happening to Jesus and what's happening with Peter? Happening at the same time. But the way John is telling the story, the Holy Spirit wants us not just to hear all of one story and then hear all of the other, but to learn something by seeing the way they unfold so differently. So we're going to hear John's description given to us through the Holy Spirit of Jesus' courage and Peter's denial. Peter Pei. Come read the word for us, brother. Thank you. Thank you for saying my name so it's not confused with the Peter in this story. Yes. <laughs> different. This is why I Jesus. said both names, right? Yeah. We've got to make that clear. <laughs> A scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 18. We'll begin reading at verse 15 and conclude at verse 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. 
the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the word. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why did you strike me? Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in a garden with him? Peter denied again, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, a lot of Christians in the West and in America, particularly, are we tend to think that Christian history started in 1517 with the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Or we may even place it sooner, you know, like I'm part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Christian history started in 1973. Um, not true. And so you wind up being like me, sort of somebody who came to Christianity later in life. I was 16 years old. I, I grew up with no... Christian background or upbringing and, you know, like, what's a Bible? Where do, what's the Old Testament? Where do I find it? Um, and, and now in my 50s kind of go, and I'm still trying to play catch up and remember that Christianity is way bigger than I have tended to perceive. And part of that means kind of this joy of, of letting a piece of me wake up, which is this artistic side um, Tricia could tell you the story of how, um, how hard I tried in my college years to just be a mind with no heart. I don't recommend it. But part of the recovery process is you wake up this, this artsy side of you and start to enjoy, hey, not only is the church big, but there's a whole lot of Christian art in the world and it's existed for centuries and I know nothing about it. Well, the, the Apostle Peter is one person who's been represented a lot in Christian artwork and symbolism. What symbols would you use to represent the Apostle Peter? 
Well, a lot of them, you look at them, and they are kind of signs of authority. These two keys crossed over one another. Peter is the the one who made the confession of Jesus as the Messiah, after which he said, I'm entrusting the keys of the kingdom to you. Uh, Peter with a, a shepherd's crook as the sort of the, the, the shepherd leader of the early church. Um, and then there's this one that I never knew existed until a few years ago. And if you go to this place in Jerusalem called St. Peter in Galicantu, it's a church, and that's a phrase that means St. Peter at Rooster Crow. The symbol you see to represent Peter more than anything else is a rooster. A reminder that this great leader in the history of the church had this incredible moment of collapse and failure. A symbol that says, Peter doesn't stand on a high mountain looking down at the rest of us. A symbol that says, that's true of Peter, it's true of you and me too. If you're a follower of Jesus, we don't stand on the high ground looking down at anyone. Share with you another favorite quote from one of my mentors. Now, he's not someone I ever met personally. I shared with you last week how I have this habit of reading books by people who aren't alive and asking Jesus to use the words of these uh, Christian forebears, men and women who have gone before me, even though I'll never meet them face to face. Jesus, how are you discipling me through the words written by these people? And so one of those folks for me is a man named Francis Schaeffer. And uh, he wrote this in one of his letters to someone who is wrestling with the fact that no church is perfect. He said, none of us are standing on a pinnacle of purity looking down at someone else far, far below. That rooster symbol captures that idea. Flawed followers of Jesus, we are not on the high ground looking down at someone else. And that has to change the way you and I read this part of the Bible. I can't read this and look down my nose at Peter because somewhere out there in the world there's a rooster with my name on it too. (laughs) Maybe the way I have let Jesus down didn't unfold exactly the way Peter's denial did on this one night. But I have to read this story differently because I know that I don't stand on that pinnacle of purity. You don't stand on that mountain of perfection able to look down on anyone else. And so the first thing that I was called to do this week as I was preparing to preach today is to kind of see myself in the place of Peter in this story. And what would I need to do first? I'm going to start in a place that's, it's going to sound a little backward because this is not the first thing the passage says. This is an implication of the other things it says. And normally a good preacher would put that at the very end, right? let I'm going to start here because this is the way the Holy Spirit worked in my own heart and life this week, and it didn't follow the sequence I was taught in preaching classes. 
and that's okay. But the first thing I'm thinking is, I got to go apologize to the servant girl at the gate if I'm Peter. I've got to go apologize to those soldiers and officers standing around the fire. I've got to go apologize to the cousin of the man whose ear I cut off in the garden. Last week, we looked at that part of the scripture. When people come to arrest Jesus and Peter pulls out his dagger, short, small sword, and cuts off the ear of a man named Malchus, I'm thinking that at some point, if I am a flawed follower of Jesus, I've got to be honest about my failures in the same way that Scripture is honest. Now, Peter didn't write John's gospel. Think about it for a minute. It'll make sense, right? But the whole Christian tradition is full of these honest reminders of the failings and flaws of key leaders, including Peter. Followers of Jesus, for all of our flaws, are called to be honest about our failures. And one application of that has to be apologizing to the people we have failed. Now, I don't know historically if, Jesus, if Peter ever saw the girl who was at the gate that he lied to again. Historically, I don't know if Peter ever saw any of those soldiers he stood around the fire warming himself with when he lied to them and said, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know if Peter ever saw Malchus whose ear he cut off again. I don't know if he ever saw Malchus's relative who looked him in the eye and said, wait a minute. I saw you in the garden, didn't I? Notice that this question takes a different form. The other times Peter is asked the question, and this is a thing in Greek, if you, I'm not making this up, okay? The way you ask the question tells whether you're expecting a no or a yes. The first two times Peter is asked the question that expects a no. Hey, you're not one of his disciples, right? No, I didn't think so. You're, you're not one of his disciples, are you? No, no, I'm not. Oh, yeah, that's what we we're expecting you to say. Okay, good, just checking. But this third question is asked a very different way. It's asking, it's asked expecting that the answer is yes. Hey, I did see you in that garden, and it is you whom I saw, isn't it? I did see you, didn't I? Like this dude knows. And Peter looks him in the eye and says, wasn't me. I don't know if Peter ever saw that man again. But I have to think that part of the honesty of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to say, look, we believe that Jesus is gracious to give people a new beginning. And that frees us up to be honest about the ways that we have failed other people. It frees us up to go back and say to the girl at the gate, I am sorry I lied to you. I disrespected you as a person. Please forgive me. I am sorry that I failed to show integrity in that moment. Here I am. A few minutes ago, I was saying I would lay down my life for Jesus if I had the opportunity. And now I just looked you in the eye and said, I don't even know the man. That is a colossal failure of integrity. And if you have caught me in it, you have every right to be offended. You have every right to be hurt. 
And I'm not going to wait for you to come and tell me about it. I'm going to come to you and say, please, forgive me. Now, I'm going to show my notes, so like show my homework here, because you always get in trouble in math class as a, a seventh grader if you get the right answer, but you didn't show the work. You start to think, yeah, you were using a calculator and just cheating. Well, am I a cheating preacher? I hope not, right? I know that the words we're reading this morning don't say anything about, hey, if you're a Christian, you need to go apologize to the people that you've hurt. But that is an implication of everything we believe about Jesus. If Jesus died and didn't rise again from the dead, then this gospel never exists. There is no story to tell. He was just another man crucified by the Romans. But if he is the son of God who came to be the king of all the universe and God verified that by raising him from the dead. Now we've got a story to tell. And now we've got a new beginning that comes after death. And if Jesus is the kind of person who gives new beginnings, then I can go and ask someone else to forgive me because he can give a new beginning to that relationship that I've broken. So everything we believe about Jesus says that if we are his flawed followers and we believe he gives new starts and resurrection resets, then we have the freedom to go to other people and just be honest. Do you remember how good it felt the time that person came to you and made no excuses? They didn't beat around the bush. They didn't make up 5,000 reasons why they failed you. They just came to you and they just straight up said, I blew it. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Do you remember how good that felt? And do you remember how slimy it felt when somebody came to you and they tried to apologize, but they qualified it so many times that all you got out of it was they want to feel better about themselves? but nothing happened to make this relationship right again. Christians ought to be at the front of getting rid of that slimy feeling in this world. Christians ought to be at the front of the line and giving other people that good feeling of I am coming to you and I am letting the story stand exactly as it happened and I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying, well, you know, Peter was afraid for his life. There were people standing around holding swords. What would you have done? Straight up just saying, I blew it. Please forgive me. Followers of Jesus are flawed. We will need to ask people frequently and sincerely to forgive us for failing them. And when we do, let's do it with honesty and integrity. We don't have to beat around the bush. We don't have to say, well, if you had been in my situation, you probably would have done the same thing. But anyway, I'm sorry. You just sucked all the power out of the apology. <laughs> Don't do that. Jesus gives us the freedom to be honest and say, I do not have to earn my way back into his love by apologizing right or by minimizing the wrong I've done. I don't have to prove I belong in his club by showing the thing I did wasn't really that wrong. 
That's moralism. We don't believe in that. We believe in this good news gospel that says Jesus will give you a new start. He can bring to life again that which was crucified. And if I have driven a nail in our relationship by mistreating you, then I have in Christ the freedom and the duty to stand up and say, please forgive me. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit taught me this week, looking at these words from Scripture. But what if I put myself in the place, not just of Peter, but of Peter as he's related to Jesus? What do I need to do? Like going and apologizing to the girl at the gate, that's a great step, but it doesn't take care of the relationship between me and Jesus. I need to go to Jesus and repent before him. And the thing I'm repenting of is not breaking a rule. Moralists repent of breaking rules. We're all about the rule keeping and earning love and favor by keeping rules. And so I'm going to get back on the right side of the rule keeping by saying, Jesus, please forgive me. I broke the rule. Humanists take a different route, right? We're all about maintaining the values of our community, however we define the community and whatever its values might be at a given moment. And they might change over time, but that's okay. It's part of humanism. You you live with that. Find a community, uphold its values. Jesus, I repent that I betrayed one of the values of the community. No. The gospel says the core of everything is relationships. How do I know? Because Jesus said there are two things that matter most in this world. First is loving God, your relationship with him. Second is loving your neighbor, your relationship with everybody else. The two things that matter most are relational. So the very first thing I got to do is recognize Jesus. It's not just that I violate rules and it's not just that I betray values. Oh, I do that all the time. I do those things, yes. But what matters most is I have hurt someone I love. I have done relational damage. I have betrayed you. This word deny, right? Peter denied it and said, I am not one of his disciples. Peter again denied it, saying, Jesus, I have gone my whole life, or in Peter's case, I've gone the whole last three years, saying, you matter more to me than everything else put together, and now I just said, you don't matter to me at all. That is betrayal. It's not just breaking a rule. It's not just violating a code or a value of the community. It is hurting the heart of someone who loves you. And if I'm in Peter's place and I'm this flawed follower, I've got to repent before the Savior I have betrayed. Because I know that he deserves my best. Why does he deserve my best? Well, he's a man of perfect integrity. That's what Jesus says when he's interrogated by the high priest. 
I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus says. Openly, it could be translated boldly. I have not sat in a corner. I have been upfront and honest. I am a person of integrity. Ask anybody who heard me teach. They'll tell you what I taught. Because I'm saying this, I will say the same thing to you that I would say to them. Whether I was teaching in the public courts of the temple or a synagogue or with 12 of my apostles or three of my apostles, I am the same person. I am a person of integrity. And of course, you and I are sitting over here with Peter going, we're not like that. (laughs) Failed the integrity test. Are you one of his disciples? Nope. (laughs) Failed it again. Are you one of his disciples? Nope. I saw you in the garden with a sword in your hand, didn't I? No, that wasn't me, man. We don't pass the integrity test. Jesus does. There's also this courage that he shows. I won't take time to unfold it all, but, but suffice it to say that, that there's a, there are, it takes courage to stand in the presence of someone who has arrested you and say to them, why don't you just be honest? You don't really want to know anything about my teaching because if you did, I wouldn't be the only one in this room. There are thousands of people who are witnesses to what I have been teaching. If you really wanted more information about my teaching, where are they? Jesus is taking a stand and saying, drop the act. The six-fingered man and the princess bride, right? He's sitting up on his horse and he looks down at Wesley and he tells a lie. And Wesley looks up at him and he says, we are men of action. Lies do not become us. Jesus is, in a much more serious way, doing the equivalent of that. You have absolute power over me in this moment, and yet I'm going to courageously stand up and say, why'd you hit me? I haven't said anything that wasn't true. And why are you pretending you want information about my teaching? Because if that's what you really wanted, I would not be the only one in this room. So here's Jesus, this man of, absolute courage and integrity who deserves our best and we betray him. That's why we have to repent. Apologies to people we have hurt, absolutely a necessary part of being a Christian. But we could apologize to everyone (laughs) and still not have repented before Jesus and said, Jesus, at the very moment you were loving me perfectly, I was failing you. Perfect love, where does that come in? Listen to what they asked Jesus about. Uh, So here's Annas, verse 19. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus, tell us something about your disciples. 
the people you've been teaching. And what does Jesus say about his disciples? If they were here right now and you asked them a question, they would answer it with boldness just the same way that I do. They would answer it with integrity just the same way that I would. You see how radical that is? Here is Jesus saying, hey, why are you asking me? Verse 21, ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. They would answer your questions if they were here. Now, of course, at the same time, Jesus is saying, my disciples would have the courage to stand up and speak boldly. Peter is out in the courtyard going, I don't know Jesus. I don't want his disciples. Jesus is not in there bad-mouthing his disciples. Jesus isn't in there saying, wait, 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 wait. You're asking me about my disciples and my teaching. Let me tell you about my teaching because my disciples, they're just a bunch of cowards. In fact, I told one of them a few hours ago that before the night's over, he's going to deny that he even knows me. He's going to do it three times before the rooster crows. At the same moment that Peter is absolutely failing Jesus, Jesus is speaking about Peter and, and, and all of his other disciples saying they are people of integrity and courage and boldness. Jesus loves his flawed followers as if we had no flaws. It's not because he is insane and has no grasp on reality. He fully grasps reality. Enough to be able to say, well, I'm the only one in this room. Lots of other people heard me. Why'd you hit me? He grasps reality. Enough to look Peter in the eye and say, Peter, I know you just said you'd die for me tonight, but the reality is you're going to, you're going to deny me three times. I know your heart. I know, I know reality. And yet, I'm going to love you. And in this moment of trial for myself, I'm going to speak of you as though you had no flaws. Jesus actually stands on the pinnacle of purity. He's the one who is up on the mountaintop of integrity and courage and love. And he has every right to look down on us and say, you are beneath me. You bunch of scum. <laughs> and instead, what does he do? He stands on a pinnacle of purity and says, these are my people. And if they were in this room with me right now and you were interrogating them, they would tell you, they would answer all your questions. They tell you what you want to know because they're courageous like I am. They're bold like I am. What is it about Jesus that even though there's this great gap between him and us, he loves us as though there were no gap? That's the thing you and I have to learn as flawed followers of Jesus. We've got to learn to issue apologies and be honest 
when we have failed other people. We've got to learn to repent before Jesus and not beat around the bush and not say, Jesus, I broke a minor rule. Will you please give me credit for it? Because I've done some things to make it up. Standing before Jesus and saying, Jesus, I betrayed you. Please pardon me. But the next thing we have to do is to say, Jesus, I want to know where you got the strength to show this kind of courage and integrity. And I want to know, will you share that with me? There's a hint about this earlier in John's gospel. And uh, it'll take me a second to find it because it's part of that other sermon that I wrote, not this one. Um, You know, Jesus, again, has a grasp on reality. And, And so he speaks to his disciples and he says, um, I know that before the night is over, Peter, you're going to deny me, but all of you are going to abandon me. You are going to leave me alone. That's the language he uses in John chapter 16. Starting with verse 32. Look, the hour is coming. In fact, it has already come when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home, and you will leave me alone. And the very next thing he says is, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you so that in me you can have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, trial, hardship, temptation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says the temperature is heating up. The night is getting late. (laughs) The betrayer has already left the room. The soldiers are on the way to arrest me. I am going to be dead within just a few hours in the most horrific way you could imagine. But I want you to share my joy. I will not fail this night. I have overcome the world. There is a secret source of strength that will be with me even when everyone else has left me. And it looks like I am alone. I will not be alone because the Father's love will never leave me. The Father is with me. And that is the only way that you and I can become useful followers of Jesus. Is if we know... That Jesus the Son has received infinite love from his Father for all of eternity. And that love will never fail. And then Jesus the Son has said, anyone who trusts me, I will invite into that same love. So every time you pray, here's how I want you to start, our Father. Every day I want you to pray like this, our Father. And this is what I prayed for you in John chapter 17. Very last request I made. Father, the love which you have shown to me, 
and you show it to them. The Father's love for him is what gave Jesus the strength to overcome the world. The Father's love is what gave Jesus the strength to be bold and courageous, even while he's being betrayed and arrested and crucified. The Father's love for him is the source of his strength. And Jesus says, I love you so much, I want you to have that same strength. It'll give you the strength to go apologize to other people when you need to. It'll give you the strength to make a new start in a relationship that you have broken. It'll give you the strength to stand before me with honesty and repent and and ask, trusting that I will pardon you because the love of the Father will not fail. It will give you the strength to overcome the very kinds of things that sometimes will cause you to leave me alone. You may fail Jesus in those moments. He will never fail you. He has done everything necessary so that God the Father could have the same degree of love for you that he has and has always had for his own son. We are flawed followers. We can never be perfect. The rooster will always be a fitting symbol for the apostle Peter. But flawed followers can change. A lot of artwork, a rooster is perched on a cross. An upside-down cross, Christian tradition says that the Apostle Peter was crucified and that he requested to be crucified upside-down as a reminder of the uniqueness of Christ, his Savior. How do you get crucified in the first century? By speaking about Jesus with boldness and courage and openness. How do you go from denying Jesus three times on the same night to speaking so powerfully about Jesus in Rome itself that you get crucified upside down? Flawed followers will never be perfect, but we can be changed. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you've been hurt by his flawed followers, please don't give up on us yet. Jesus can change us. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus and you don't want to be a Christian and part of the reason is people like me have hurt you too badly and too much, then please don't give up on him because of us. If you're a follower of Jesus today and you know yourself to be flawed, hear this. Jesus has not given up on you. You will never be perfect. There will all be a, always be a rooster somewhere with your name on it. But the Savior who loves you perfectly 
and who draws you into the love of his very own Father, he can change you powerfully. He can change us. He has overcome the world. Let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, thank you for your tender mercy to love arrogant people like the Apostle Peter who um, thought more highly of himself than he was really ready to live. Thank you for loving people like me who have betrayed and failed you more ways than I have the courage to be honest about. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for these great gifts of love. We pray in your name. Amen.